A very good evening to you. I'm Fiona Mountford, theatre critic of the Evening Standard, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Here We Go platform. Now, as you probably know, Here We Go is an audacious experiment in theatrical form, and I felt that Dominic and I should perhaps reciprocate in kind. I thought maybe <laughs> we could do the whole platform in Morse code or semaphore <laughs> or something like that. So that's always an option. We might go back to that. My guest tonight needs absolutely no introduction. As artistic director of the Royal Court, he oversaw a golden age of British playwriting, producing a glorious stream of hits that included Jerusalem, Clybourne Park and Posh, and nurturing an explosive new generation of talent, the likes of Polly Stenham, Mike Bartlett and Anya Rees. Earlier this year, he joined The National as one of Rufus Norris's new team of associate directors, and this marks his first production in that role. He is, of course, Dominic Cook. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so, as I mentioned in the introduction, Here We Go is a big experiment in theatrical form. And I know that you're a particular supporter of formal innovation. Why is it so important? Um, because if you want an audience to really receive something, you have to... Um, slightly disorientate them, I think. Okay. I think if you, if you present a new idea in a received form, people tend to um, feel very safe and familiar, okay. and therefore they often don't receive the content fully. Right. So destabilise them. In a, a way. Bit. I mean, it's, it's yeah. kind of, that sounds quite aggressive, and it isn't really <laughs> the case. I just think every idea and every dramatic conflict has its own natural form. And what's unique about Carol is that she doesn't ever, seems to me, deliver a play that doesn't have a new form. Yes, yeah. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't recall seeing such a bold playwriting experiment at the National for a very long time. <laughs> when you suggested doing this one, was the idea warmly received? Very much so, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Carol, I think it's right to say that she has every new play has gone to the Royal Court. The last one might have been The Scriker, which did come here in about 92 or 3. Right. Um, and she did do a premiere at the RSC back in the 80s. Right. But she has such a strong relationship with the court that normally the plays go there. We'd had a long conversation about death because both our mothers died in a very short space of time. Right. Um, so I think that's partly why she sent the play to me. Yeah. And because I was coming here and we were talking about doing some of Carol's old plays at the time, actually, um, one of which we've just done here. Yes. Um, that's how it kind of ended up coming my way and coming to the National. Because you and Carol Churchill have enjoyed a long and fruitful working relationship together, haven't you? Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, how did it start, for example? It started when I was an associate director at the Royal Court, and I, we did this, uh, Ian Richardson, very early on in his time, because I kind of joined, it must have been like 99, I joined the court, and he uh, had this idea of doing these readings called Playwrights, Playwrights. It was a really great thing. What, he, what, what, he, what we did was we asked playwrights to direct readings of favorite plays. Right. And Carol was on that, that, we did two lots of them, and the first lot Carol did directed a reading of a Wallace Shawn play called Our Late Night. Mm -hmm. And it was so good that it was then done as a full production right. at the Ambassadors. Um, and I first proper, I don't know whether I first met Carol, I first got to know her, I started to work with her then. And then when I was at the court, she had Far Away and a number on, and I, then I, the first thing I directed was, we did this, actually I think really, we, 
it's because we didn't really have any money at the time, so we, we decided to do a short season of her work. We couldn't really afford a full production, so we did a short season of her, sh a small season of her short plays upstairs. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I directed a brilliant radio play she'd written in the 60s called Identical Twins. Oh. Ian Rickson directed a play called Not, Not, Not Enough Oxygen, and then we co-directed a 10-minute play called This Is a Chair. And so that's when I really started to work with Carol. And then from that point, we've, be, you know, we've, we've become friends and we've worked together on a number of yeah. projects. Two directors, sorry, because we're, we're, we're going to have to diversify now. Co-directing a 10-minute play. Yeah, you did five minutes each. Yeah, it no, it was, it, it's a, I, I don't, it's, I love to play. It's, it's a play that's based on the kind of Magritte paintings where there's a, an object mm -hmm. and then there's a title that bears no relationship to the object. Right. It's a play she wrote at a point at which I think, I think she was becoming disenchanted or uncertain about the impact of political theatre. Mm -hmm. And she was constantly being asked to write plays by various people on issues. And she wrote this really witty play where it has like a title like The Collapse of the Soviet Union. And then there'd be a little scene which is two people, one person's late for a date, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with the title. And the scene's about seven, the play's about seven scenes like this. Right. They're, they're, each scene is brilliantly written. Um, so what we did was we split I, we did, I think Ian did three scenes, I did three scenes, and then we did one scene together. And, and then you, we put them all together. <laughs> and did you know what the other one was doing? Or was it just was it a big I surprise on no, the first night? No, we, do, no we, 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 showed, we showed the work to each other. I think I remember we showed the work to each other like a week and a half. It was only two, week or two weeks of rehearsal. So we showed, you know, we showed our scenes to each yeah. other, and then we gave each other notes, and then we, we put, put it all together. Blimey, yeah. wow. <laughs> <laughs> closely were involved were you in the genesis of Here We Go? I mean, did Carol talk to you about it from the beginning? You said you were having conversations, or did she present you with she the script? She just gave me the script. Okay. And, um, and I thought it was amazing. And you didn't know it was going to be about death, or you did? No, you didn't no, not until I read it, no. no. I mean, I've, I've, that's happened with all the, the plays that I've read, you know, fresh from Carol. I've, I've not known she was writing the play, and it turns up, and you read it, and decide whether you're going to do it or not. So... You, as a lot of you will probably know, you might have read some of the reviews um, over this weekend. The final section, 15 minutes or so, is, is wordless. So what was your reaction when you first read that instruction on Carol's script? Well, the thing is, it's very different reading an instruction to actually doing it, isn't yes. it? Because the instruction says something like, I mean, I might as well say it, it says something like um, a frail, uh, this is real paraphrasing, um, a, a carer dresses and undresses a frail person, something like that. Yes. Or dresses, no, dresses, then undresses. It's done about six times in the script. Yes. And how did you decide, I mean, how did you decide how long to make that Well, scene? once we actually, we, we, got, we, got, um, we got advice from someone. We had someone coming in from the palliative care team at uh, UCLH. Hmm. Actually, no, he, no, sorry, we had a doctor from the palliative care team, but we had a nurse from the oncology um, ward and he showed us how he would get someone dressed and undressed. Okay, sure. So it's so meticulous. It's very and meticulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we 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 watched him work, and then we copied it really, and then we worked out how long we thought it could hold for. After a while, we decided that we should do the whole thing twice, the whole sequence twice. Yes. So that's how we kind of arrived at it. It was it was it was you know just by doing it really. Gosh, because yes, and yeah, it's it, well you, you're in you're in for a treat when you when you see it. You really are. And um, after the press night on Friday, you said a very interesting thing to me. You said you compared here we go to some extent to an art installation. Mm. Can you unpack that idea a little bit. 
Well, I mean, I, th I do think, I mean, I don't, I've never really talked to Carol about this, but I do think probably a lot of her influences are from contemporary art. Um, and um, I suppose, in a way, you know, it's, it, the, especially the final section breaks all the rules of what a piece of drama should do. It's a ritual, but it's, I mean, the, there is ritual in drama, but it's a ritual that is repeated. Um, and it reminds me of live art installations that I've seen in the past. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's like, it, it, in a way, it's been described as a triptych, and I think that's true, in that there are three separate responses yes. to this idea. And the third one is, yeah, the third one is particularly like a kind of installation. I mean. Yeah. Did Carol attend all your rehearsals? Yeah. Were you ever tempted to say, at any point, please just write a few words? No. No. Just. No, no. I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, she really knows what she's doing. No, I'm not. And the other thing is that she trusts her. She trusts. It seems to me, as an artist, she really trusts her unconscious, her intuition about yeah. things. And the thing is that the structure of it is, you know, there is this wall of words at one point, and then there's total silence. And I think. I think one of the provo provocations of it is asking us to look physically at something we don't want to look at. Yes. Our culture is so obsessed with beauty, immortality, yes. never getting old. Uh, we don't like looking at frailty. We don't really like looking at old age. Older people are pushed aside in the culture. Yeah. So it does ask us to, it's not just that it's repetitive and kind of in some ways not dramatic in a traditional sense it's also that the content of it is uncomfortable for us yes you know and we yeah. we because people are living longer you know we tend to avert our gaze yes from what that means what it feels like but it has had a very it's very interesting how subjective the responses have been to it i mean from indignation outrage to people being unable to move yeah depending on their own, I think, relationship to the experience of caring for someone who's frail or yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. And I, th I think it, it also makes us confront the idea of death, and that's another thing yeah. we don't, we're not easy as a culture talking about, and it really, it really makes, us, it makes us face that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it, it's a kind of sickness, I think, of our time. Do I you? really do, yeah. I think our inability to, or our discomfort collectively, to really face the one fact of life that we know, yeah. you know, which is we're going to die. Some it's point we're going to die. And, you know, it's amazing how little, because we were thinking about it while we were doing the, doing the work, you know, how, how much, you know, how little work there is on this subject, yes. really, yeah. relative to how prevalent the condition <laughs> of dying is, yes. you know. <laughs> There's not actually that much work that really looks at, at, at what, it, what it's like to be left, what it's like to go through that, I mean, an imaginative response to what it might be like to die. Yes. You know. Why do we avoid it? Well, because it's painful and horrible to accept. <laughs> you know. Yes. Okay. So, no, fair enough. We're such a verbal, literate, communicative culture, aren't we? It's interesting that we do, as you absolutely say, we do really yeah. make a pretty wide detail yeah. around that topic. I think it also, I think the other thing is that it really presents us with big questions of meaning, doesn't it? Why are we here? Yeah. If our life ends, and for those of us who don't believe in a, in a spiritual life beyond that, yes. or the soul existing beyond that, and even for those who do, they still are uncertain about exactly what form that might take. So, yes. It really raises questions of, of why we're here. 
Yeah. And that's a really difficult one to answer. It so, is. you know, a lot of us think about it. I think most human beings think about it in one form or another, but um, it's very difficult to talk about. So I think, yeah. I think, you know, I think... So in a way, maybe silence is the best response to Maybe, that. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I found it. I was, I was, I was completely, I was mesmerised by. It. I'm not often mesmerised yeah. by. I really, it's very interesting. It was a very rare quality of silence. I thought. Yeah. Oh, there was a bit of tutting. Let's not. There's a little bit of tutting, um, but there's there's a there's a quality of silence. That I think it's very special. It's interesting how uh, in theatre, theatre can provoke a kind of anger. Right. That very other, very few other forms do. I mean, I think if you see a piece of art, for example, in a gallery that really annoys you, yeah. you just walk out of the room. Of course you do. And if you see a film that's annoying, somehow it's less annoying than the theatre. Why is so? Why? Okay, so why is theatre so? Why is theatre so? Can it be so unique? I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think but it might be the liveness of it. I'm not sure why that is. I think it might be the liveness of the fact that there are people doing this thing in front of you. Yes. Um, and of course, it makes it uniquely potent. I think when when something is particularly potent in the theatre, it, it has the ability to kind of reach and touch people in a way that's um, very, very unique. Yeah. Yes, I as think wonderful as film is and as powerful as, as it is as a medium, I think theatre can be very profound when it, when it lands. It's just very hard to make it land. <laughs> yeah. well, there, there have perhaps inevitably been some mixed reviews for the piece, some very mm. good ones. Some mm. one review that memorably said, bring some knitting. Don't bring <laughs> knitting. That's not a good idea. Do you read them? Do they interest you? You know what? I, I skim them. Okay. I get a sense of them. Um, Where do you start? Do you look for your name first? No, I don't actually. I normally or? read. I normally... I'm I don't really like the star thing. Okay. But of course, that's a fact of life now. So you just look at the stars and then you look at the first paragraph and then kind of the last one and then... Don't look at it anymore. Right. I don't really. I don't know why it is. I used to read them much more carefully, but I think in the end, you're. Right. I've had so many different types of review over the years, from lots of bad ones and good ones, and I think you've got to have your own relationship to what you're doing, because otherwise you'd go mad. I mean, if yes. you really paid attention to what everyone else said, you really do need to know why you're doing what you're doing, um, and I think you do have your own critical relationship to it. Right. Always. I mean, I'm a real perfectionist, so I very rarely think that what I've done is brilliant. I, most of the time, in fact, I can't think I ever thought that about anything I've done. But I think in time, you have a, you have a much clearer perspective. So a year, two years on, you think back, you start to think, well, I, maybe I could have done that differently. And normally it's about what did I do that led to that part of the work that I wasn't happy with. Right. You know? Yeah. Or that didn't quite land. So you're, you're your own harshest I think critic. you've got to try and do that. I mean, listen, everyone, there, there is not a, an artist alive that doesn't want everyone to love their work. Of course. I mean, I think, I think whatever people say, of course you want people to love it and be affected by it. But the reality is that that's never the case. Yes. Never the case. What I find is, wherever I'm sitting in, a, in an auditorium, the person who le least <laughs> likes what I've done <laughs> is sitting directly in front of me. <laughs> So it's one of those laws. <laughs> so it can be a whole theatre full of people having a great time and there'll be one person who's asleep and they're right there. <laughs> or angry or something negative. So it's the, it's the law of anti-hubris, just in yeah, case no, you're that's going, right. this is a yeah, masterpiece. That's right. So what was the person who was annoyed doing on press night sleeping? Well, actually, the press night, I was right at the back, okay. so I had less of a sense of it. Okay. Um, the first preview was much more... 
um, vocal or tense. It was much more okay. tense. And I think it's partly because the first two sections of the play weren't quite there. Okay. Um, and so there was already... We, we also started 10 minutes late, so there was already a bit of tension in okay. the auditorium beforehand. So, you know, these things are very mysterious. The chemistry of what's happening in a room at, from one night to the next. Yeah. It varies on, depending on who's there and what yeah. the actors are bringing to it that night. You know, it does vary. Whether there were delays on the tube, that sort Those of thing. Those things do they play do, out. They do. And also things like if you're doing a comedy and you've got a brilliant loud laugher in, <laughs> yes. you know, it sets things off. <laughs> How hard is it to direct silence? Um, well, look, in this case, it wasn't difficult because we had a very clear set of actions. And what we talked about a lot was um, don't act. Okay. Don't try and fill the action. Don't try and comment because actors are creative animals and they, they will always want to um, invent narrative. It's just right. they're hardwired to do that. That's, that's their job. So um, my thing on this was try not to do that. Try to just focus on the actions that need to be done. Yes. And let the, let, because it's a something that the audience project a huge amount onto, yes. for, either from their own experience or from what they know about the character early on in the story. Yes. And I think if, if the actors in this case get too interesting, yeah. the audience don't have that space and they, they aren't, they're, they're less able to bring their own experience to it yes it's a very profound reflective space isn't it yeah. that it offers yeah yeah so you're right because i was thinking yes maybe because well somebody could do some quirky sort of little actory thing and that yeah. actually would be very distracting yeah well we, we, i mean i spent quite a lot of time imagining all the things you could have done yeah, we don't want jazz know. hands in the middle of it but you want to um your responsibility i think as a writer of the f of, as a director of a first play a first production of a play is to try and respond to the play as honestly and in some ways as simply as you can. Mm. And some plays invite, for example, this play, the first section is all unallocated text, it's mm. just lines. Yeah. Um, so that does invite, you know, an intervention from the director. Yes. Some plays are much more prescriptive in their stage directions and very clear in exactly what the writer wants to see on stage. You know, I'm all for directors reinventing things, but I think there is a certain responsibility. So I really wanted to try and deliver in the purest possible way where Carol had a clear sense of what she wanted, that. Yeah. Because writers normally have a sense of some of the play is very clear to them, and others, other areas, they're very open. But, you know, I come from the Royal Court, and, you know, it's, it's now in my bones, and the way of working there is that the writer is involved in everything. Yes. The copy and the brochure, the you know the image, the hiring of designer, director—they are involved in every stage of the work, and I really believe in that as a yeah. way of working. It's not the only way to work, but I really believe in it. So you know, that was the way I came into this project, really. Well, uh, that uh, next question I wanted to ask you is: Is it different staging a new play mm. at the National to at the Royal Court? No. No, same. Just. Different. I don't think so. I mean, obviously, the space is different. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think, I do think it's interesting what audiences go to different theatres and what audiences bring in terms of expectation. Right. I mean, once you call something the National Theatre. Or the Royal National Theatre. Yeah. If we're trying to. I think that's gone now, hasn't it? I think it's still officially on the oh, deeds, is it? isn't oh, okay. it? I don't is think it? you can de-royalise a place, can you? Well, no, but it wasn't royal initially. They just, they no, made Richard it royal. Richard Eyre. Yeah. Yeah. Royal. <laughs> um, 
be beheaded. You, you might be, yeah. Um, I think once you call a theatre a national theatre, there's, there's a certain amount of freight that goes with everything you do. Sure. Which is, you know... Are the stakes higher here, then? I don't know. I don't feel... I don't really think about that. I don't... I genuinely don't. Because when you're in a rehearsal room making a piece of theatre, you, 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 you're too focused on what you're trying to do. Yeah. I don't think you can really... I think that would be un, unhelpful to worry too much about that. Yeah. But, but there's no doubt that, that, that the experience is prescribed by the cultural baggage of the organisation. And one of the things I found, for example, at the RSC when I worked there, was there's an incredible ownership of Shakespeare there. Mm. <clears throat> so you, you'd frequently get these letters... <laughs> saying. Saying, you know, how dare you... <laughs> make Celia wear glasses <laughs> in As You Like It. I mean, that's ridiculous. I didn't get yeah. that letter. But you would get letters a bit like that. And, and you think, well, that's because you're, the definitive moment for you to do with Celia was a particular production at a particular point in your life. And that yeah. is very meaningful to you. Yes. And you have made a huge connection with that moment. Yes. And I am somehow challenging that yes. by doing a different version of it. Um, and ownership is a really big issue. At the court, there's a big sense of ownership of a particular type of work. Mm. And that's, that's very subjective and it varies from person to person, but I did deal with a lot of that. So the National's a much more eclectic programme, but, you know, people have an expectation that something's going to really matter at yes. the National. Yes. You know? Because it's the you're, National Theatre. You're right, they do. <laughs> I think, uh, yes. Well, as I <laughs> mentioned at the beginning, you, you are, you're an associate director here at the National. Now, it's a phrase I think we all hear a lot, but perhaps you can explain to us briefly what exactly does that mean? What's well, it, it really varies. I mean, my previous two roles as associate, one was at the court for four years and one was at the uh, RSC, were really full-on, full-time jobs. Right. I mean, they were, I was in every day. They were jobs, proper jobs. This is a bit more like a consultant role. Okay, nice. It's yeah. different. I come in for meetings. Um, I'm available to support productions, and I have to try and come up with ideas for shows for myself and for other people. Yeah. Um, I didn't want a full-time job, and, and actually Rufus didn't particularly want that either from any of his associates, but having been in buildings for, what, was actually 13 years back-to-back, I didn't want to have that kind of responsibility and the kind of management side of the role. Yeah. But it's very, very lovely to be part of um, part of a, of a building and a building with. I mean, it's a great group of people. I mean, yes. that. I mean, the, the the team here are fantastic, and the, the 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 directors group that I'm part of is just brilliant. So that's nice coming in and a nice sort of middle way between the yeah. Yeah, because I think you can, as a freelancer, feel quite isolated. So I've enjoyed, I've really enjoyed the discussions, and um, and because I've run a theatre, I think I've got, I feel I can offer something. You know. But the buck, um, you work full time in theatre thirty, so the buck doesn't ultimately stop with you. Quite a relief. Mercifully not. Yeah. <laughs> the buck stops somewhere near you, but not quite. <laughs> um, just if we might take a slightly wider angle for a minute, do you think the new writing sector of British theatre is in good health? generally at the moment. Do you think we're encouraging innovation? It's so hard to say, isn't it? I mean, I do think generally, yes, it is in good health. I think we, when you compare... The thing is, our culture, our theatre culture in the UK is... The writer is very central to that. Right. And I, I've always thought it's partly because we have Shakespeare. Yeah. And Shakespeare's one of the most famous people who's ever lived. Yes. And he lived here. 
Yep. So our theatre has evolved. That, that, that very important fact has conditioned the evolution of our theatre. Um, and, you know, we, we sometimes get a lot of criticism, both internally and externally, that our directing work is not as, as uh, inventive as it is in other parts, for example, of Europe. Yes. Yeah. Which I think is actually probably a fair criticism. But you can't separate the two things off. Yeah. For example, German theatre, which is very in vogue at the moment amongst younger directors in Britain, yeah. is um, a director-led theatre. They invented the idea of the theatre director there in the 19th century. Mm. And, you know... So the roots, you have to look at, the, at where a theatre culture has evolved from. I think we are really good at encouraging writers um, in this country and getting their plays on quickly. You know, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of countries, you have to have had five or six plays put through workshops and not actually produced. And we, we, tend, to, we tend to welcome new voices to the stage here right. quite readily. So, no, I think it is in, it is in good health. Share with us one thing you've learned doing this production of Here We Go. God, that's really hard to answer right now. Um, I, put you on I tell you what, I think, I, I don't know. I think we were, oh, I suspect that when I first started going to the theatre properly, as a kind of independent person in the 80s, I think audiences were more ready for experiments oh. in form or just okay. experimental work or provocative work in the main theatres. More and ready I think, then? Yeah, okay, sure. I think we're less ready for that now. We're less open to it somehow. And that is because... God, I'm sure there are many, many factors in that. Um, I think we've... I think probably we've got... I think populism is a much bigger thing now than it was then. Okay. I, think, I think populism in the culture, and we've become confused about what is popular and what has integral value. And, of course, if you look back historically, all the really groundbreaking plays, pretty much all of them, from Look Back in Anger to Waiting for Godot to Blasted in the 1990s, mm -hmm. were slated. Right. Slated. Yeah. And they're not necessarily, they weren't necessarily popular. I mean, Look Back in Anger became popular because one, a critic stuck his neck out and said, this is actually really important, you need to see it. But, um, you know, it, sometimes artists are ahead of public taste. Um, and I think we've moved into a realm where, quite a healthy realm in some ways, where it's kind of okay to be populist. I yes. like that because I actually really like reaching wide audiences and I don't have a snobbery about things that are accessible. I think sometimes things that are accessible are really good. Yes. But I think maybe that's become much more prevalent in the theatre. The so idea it's made of us populism. more fearful of the... Well, we've been, therefore, yeah. we've got used to seeing things that are very accessible yeah. and very um, entertaining immediately and less trained because it, it, some yeah. of it's to do with training, isn't it? Right, I mean, I remember yes. going to see Shakespeare when I was younger and struggling and the more I saw, the more accessible it became to me yeah. because you, it's like a muscle. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't know, that's just a speculation. No, but but, I, but I, I think people... I've done a few things in the last few years that have been a, the odd deal production, like I did a play by Martin Crimp called In the Republic of Happiness. Mm. And um, that we had on the first preview, 10% of the audience walked out. Ah, yes, yeah. But walked out in such a kind of theatrical fashion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know... You like wouldn't I'd, walk out of <laughs> cinema so theatrically, no, would was, you? No, it was furious <laughs> seat storming out of the room and, yeah. and you think well you know you've only been asked to be here for an hour and a half it's not that 
terrible. It's, I mean, really, in life terms, there are worse things that can happen to you. But, but, but it was almost like an affront to people that they, that they felt that they had to struggle to connect with this, this, this piece. Yes. Um, I mean, it is, you know, some... It is, I don't know, I suppose maybe people feel there's something aggressive about, about a piece of work that's not immediately um, accessible. I'm not sure. That's I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Next up for the National, you're directing uh, August Wilson's modern American classic, Ma Rainey's Black mm. Bottom, uh, which opens in late January. Uh, quite a gear change from this. Are you, yeah. you, in, you start rehearsing, I think you said next week. Yeah. You're in the headspace. Where are you? Are I've you done quite a lot of work on it a while back, but I have to, right. yeah, I have to really... <laughs> that is quite a gear change <laughs> from this it's to that, It's a big gear it? change, you yeah. It's a big gear change. Yep. Wow. Look, there's so much here that we could talk about, but, and I'm, but I'm sure many of you are keen to go and have a glass of wine and then watch the play that we've been discussing. Um, we're going to have to wrap things up. So all that remains for me to do is to thank you all very much for coming and, of course, to thank our guest, Dominic Cook. Thank you. Thank you very much.